I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Welcome to The Literary Life. My guest on The Literary Life today is the great Tim Dorsey. Tim has a brand new book out called Tropic of Stupid. And Tim is um, one of the really, when you, when you think of Florida writers, Tim, even though I hate to, to get into that, uh, that business of categorizing people, but it's hard to get away from the fact that you're a writer that uses Florida as his uh, uh, probably central location for, for most all of your novels. And Tim is one of the greats. Tim, um, I first met Tim uh, way back over 20 years ago and when he wrote Florida Roadkill. That was the first one, right, Tim? That was, that's correct. It was, uh, it was 1999 and uh, I remember, you know, poking around trying to find a parking spot near Aragon, you know, and, to, and going in there. And it was, um, and I said it before because I knew, like the whole time I was dreaming about being, you know, a writer. And obviously, I was writing about Florida. It was years and years, and I was following all of the big writers, and it was just a dream because you, pragmatically, you know, the odds are it's a long shot. And uh, but I remember seeing. Uh, I remember seeing interviews with you and your picture in Ocean Drive about the Miami Book Fair. So I knew all about you. I knew all about Hyacin, you know, and everything. And I was just pinching myself when I, when I walked into your store. 
Well, you, if I remember, if, in 1999, it was right before we moved into where we are now. So it was in the old books and books, right? right. It was in yep. the smaller books and books. And because we moved into that store in the year 2000. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Isn't that wild how we remember things so vividly? And yet now you're on your 28th book or 20, 24th book. But it's, it's, you are, you're, you're, it's been sort of amazing. But I want to go really back to the early days because you're a perfect example of somebody who, although you weren't born here, you were raised in Florida. You grew up not far from Miami, I think. Was it Riviera Beach, I think? Riviera Beach, yeah. I came there when I was one. So I, I don't have any memory prior to that. That's when I, you know, <laughs> my memory started you know, on the beach on Singer Island, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what, what brought your family down to Florida? Well, <laughs> wow, what a convoluted story. Um, my mom had just gotten divorced, like, right after I was born. And so she moved in with her, with her mother in Massachusetts. And my grandfather, who was divorced from my grandmother, was working at Pratt Whitney. And they just opened a new plant. I mean, it's amazing how things pinball around and you end up where you're supposed to be through random circumstances. So they opened this gigantic Pratt & Whitney aircraft engine plant in the Waxahachie Slough, kind of you know inland from West Palm Beach. And they offered people bonuses to uh, relocate to Florida from New England. And so my grandfather approached them and said, okay, well, let's get remarried. <laughs> and so there was... Wow. So, so he remarried my grandmother, and then them and my mom, who was still a kid practically, and me as an infant, moved down to Riviera Beach. Oh, what a great story that is. That's how so, I ended up in Florida. So, Tim, and then I noticed that you then went back up to New England to go to high school, right? Yes. And, and was that a similar kind of story, or is it just that your parents felt... <laughs> and your grandpa, your mother, and grandparents felt like it'd be better for you to be out of my, out of this South Florida area, in the uh, in the seventies. Well, actually, it was. Um, it's kind of funnier than that. Uh, I started high school down here, and then between my freshman and sophomore year, we moved back up. What happened was, my grandparents who moved down here. It's just the opposite of what everybody does. They moved down here, um, you know, to take the job with Pratt Whitney. And, you know, so that my mom and me could you know, live with them and everything. And then when my grandfather retired, they decided to retire to New England. And they went up there for like three or four years. And after that, they were like, what were we thinking? And then they moved back to Florida. <laughs> oh, so you were, you, you were like in between that you were going to college before they moved back down. I mean, going to high school before they moved back down. Is right. that right? In other words, I moved with them, they, you know, before my sophomore year and then, Shortly after I graduated high school and went off to college, they moved back to Florida. They said, this is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but, but you really were ping-ponging all over the place. But, yeah. but clearly, Miami or Florida had quite an impact on you growing up. Tell me about what the Florida was like for Tim Dorsey as a kid growing up and in, in going through school. Well, you know how... Um, I think a lot of people say, oh, my childhood was terrible, it was dysfunctional, it was this and that. And I think about it often, about all the things that had to align to give me like a perfect childhood. I mean, it was a time 
place, everything. And um, I, I kind of look at it like I was like a subtropical hut fin because times were simpler. You didn't have all these digital devices. You know, it, was, it wasn't dangerous back then. And, you know, your ticket to freedom was your bike. I had a banana bike and you could just ride all over the place. I remember I had to take my fishing tackle box and, you know, I was like nine years old and just ride down to the Blue Heron Bridge over the intercoastal. And I mean, there were some big fish. I remember hooking a, uh, of course, I was not going to catch it, but like I remember hooking a hammerhead shark and like getting its head up out of the water several times. It was huge. It was the biggest thing I ever, wow. but that's the kind of fish that come in the Palm Beach Inlet, you know, and through the intercoastal. And I remember cast netting for fish and uh, going down and playing baseball, you know, Sandlot baseball down at the local fields. And it was just, uh, uh, like I said, people complain about their, their childhoods. Mine was, maybe that's what inspires what I'm you know, doing now because that's my muse is my great memories. Uh, it was uncomplicated. You know, you could ride your bike down to the drugstore and get your comic books, you know, and your, your, your baseball cards and, just whatever it was, uh, it was, it was paradise. And what turned you into a reader? Do you think? What turned me into a reader was I was actually writing before I was reading, and I had a teacher who uh, it was you know there were the curriculums back then. Um, I went to public school. I went to all kinds of different schools. I went to public school. I went to uh, Baptist school. I, I went to parochial school. And the, the, the curriculums, you know, they would make you read like Wuthering Heights and, and you know, Beowulf. And, and if you haven't learned, to, if you have, especially guys, if you haven't uh, learned to love reading for its own sake, that stuff's going to kind of turn you off. So I, I had a teacher, he was kind of a child of the 60s. He, he pulled me aside because he could tell that, uh, you know, I was turning in, I was writing these little attempts at humorous essays. And I would just give it to him after class. I go, can you tell me what you think of this? You know, it wasn't part of the curriculum at all. And he pulled me aside and he knew I didn't like the curriculum. And he goes, you need to read this stuff. And I go, why would I want to read unless I'm forced to by the curriculum? He goes, no, no, just, just, just try it. You know? And he gave me, of course, I was at a young, impressionable age. And he gave me um, like uh, Vonnegut and Catch-22 and uh, you know, stuff, just all kinds of counterculture, you know, uh, one floor of the cuckoo's nest and what a gift what a gift that teacher was to you that's fantastic and i uh i would go back and like from then on i always had a paperback in my back pocket i went from hating reading because of the horrible books they chose for us i said what, what do you have next what do you have next you know he took me you know like fear and loathing in las vegas or just wow. crazy stuff and um and then from there i wanted to be you know a writer as a result. So when did the writing, when did you make that connection? You, clearly you were writing early on if you were doing little humorous essays. So when, when did that happen? Was it just, was there storytelling in your family? Were you the storyteller? How did that come to be? Uh, they were just little essays. They really weren't stories. It was, uh, I had a little manual typewriter and I was 12 and I would type these things up and I was I was influenced by like Mad Magazine and Ronan Martin's Laughing, not literary at all. But I started writing these weird, like for a kid that age. So I was writing these political like satires on like uh, uh, Nixon's economic policies. I remember that specific <laughs> one that saved it. 
because he had like phase one and phase two and phase three. Right. And it, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. But what's a 12-year-old doing <laughs> writing that sort of stuff? So by the time I was 15, it coalesced solidly into, I'm going to dedicate my life to trying to write books. So you knew that at the age of 15. Wow. I knew what I wanted. I didn't, it's like somebody who sees somebody playing the piano, right? And, and you say, oh, I would love to be a pianist. That's so inspirational. But you don't know until you develop your talent at it. And you don't know where you're going to hit your ceiling. As far so as when, you went off, when you went off to Auburn and you became the, uh, the head of the, the, uh, the editor of the uh, student newspaper, you firmly had books in the back of your mind. You knew you'd be writing at that point. By then, I knew what I, the plan at that point was to get out of school and go to work for a daily newspaper as a reporter. That way, I would have to write every day as part of my job. And uh, it would be like, you know, having it built into your job that you have to exercise every day. So, so when, you were, when you were, you know, being in Auburn is interesting. I mean, being in Alabama at that time, you know, in the early 80s. Uh, late 70s was a very interesting period to be there. And there were some really interesting writing writers there at both the University of Alabama, at Auburn. Did you study with anybody at that point? I, I did. Um, I was, believe it or not, my, my degree is in transportation. It's, it's a long story. Um, but I kept, it was basically the way all of my uh, credits were jumbled up. That was my quickest way to graduate. And I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to get to work on a newspaper. I didn't want to dilly dally taking classes. I wanted to start writing. And, uh, but no, I didn't, I didn't know any writers at the time. I had some great, you know, professors that took me under their wing. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it was an interesting time. I mean. Now, when, when is it that you discovered the Florida writers and who were they? Who were the first ones that you were reading? Well, Interesting thing was I read some books that weren't mysteries or that I didn't know were mysteries when I read them. And then like, for example, um, now the thing is I knew I wanted to write about Florida cause I made, I made that big loop, you know, back, you know, and then once I came back to Florida, I realized how much I love that childhood. And I, and I started taking road trips back to the places of my youth and going to check out Cypress gardens and a lot of the roadside attractions. Uh, but uh, I remember the first one I read was Thomas McGuane's uh, 92 in the Shade. Right. And you don't realize that that's a mystery, but it is a mystery. But it's, I mean, it's literature, you know. And so I, I read that and I just, I finished the book and I was like, wow, you know, that's the bar that I got to, <laughs> you know, that's the bar. That's a tough one. Uh, and I read that and then I read, um, I read Charles Williford's uh, Miami Blues. And, and so at that point, uh, God, there was, a, there was a, couple, a couple others I read that I wasn't looking for mysteries. I wanted to read Florida books. And um, I, I forget which one I read after that, but it, was, it bridged it. And I, would imagine, I would imagine that Charlie's work dovetailed with your strange little sense of humor as well when you read Miami Blues, right? Yeah, yeah, and um, I forget which one, but it was um, it was in the Hope Mosley series, where it might have been uh, either Sideswipe or No Hope for the New Hope for the Dead, where he has like a nervous breakdown, and so they tell him to take some time off. Right. And literally, 
he uh, moved up to Riviera Beach. Right. Wow. True. <laughs> and then I dug through the internet, uh, and I could not believe what I found. And it what it was was it was um, oh it was like Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine or whatever. And it was published out of New York, but that was just like their corporate office or whatever. But their writing office was in Riviera Beach. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So I tracked it down through the old phone books and I went and I think it's now some restaurant on the beach now. But uh, I, I always like to go places, even if it's gone. I just want to see where a place was. And so I tracked down that was and he wrote. Uh, I forget the name of the article. But he, he wrote his first article that was published in that building. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is quite, that's a quite, quite a great story. It's so quite a coincidence. <laughs> it is. Did you get to meet Charlie at all? Did you meet him? He was, he was prior to my time. I mean, right. I, I, I caught a couple that I was, I had, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet, like, you know, Patrick Smith and, you know, some people, you know, along those lines. Uh, but I did not get to meet him. A lot of people don't know Patrick Smith. Tell me, tell us, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Patrick Smith and your relationship to his work. Well, it was kind of more of uh, just more of being awe, in awe because, like I said, it just there was a barely an overlap. You know, my first couple of books came out, and he would be at, you know, the authors would be at maybe a reception following a book festival. And, uh, and so it was more or less, you know, kind of being tongue tied around him. <laughs> so there was, there was a tremendous, uh, there was just, you know, pleasantries and professional courtesies. What was the but, name of his great, his great work again? A is Land Remembered. A Land Remembered. That's right. That was, that was a great work. We sold so many of those, but, you know, people knew him, but I don't know that he, that he got to do that he should have gotten completely. I think he's getting it now, uh, but maybe not like seismically nationwide. But, you know, if basically, you know, if you look up a land remembered, you know, all, all the, you know, or if I, like, I'll go around and it was, um, it was actually, it was, a, it was Pineapple Press out of Sarasota that published right, it. Right. And I, I read it and every once in a while I said, okay, I'm going to have to, let this sit in my mind for a while because I think I might have just read one of the best Florida books ever, but I went up, you know, it was fresh and I was blown away by it. And I said, let me just, let me see if it ages well. And, and it has, it's, it's one of those. Influential- Tell me what, what struck you most about it? What is it that you love most about it? Well, two things is the reservoir of historical Florida knowledge. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, in a, Across generations, and he was able to take you through, like Florida growing up, along with these this family of three generations growing up, and that there were the changes in Florida all the way along, from just post Civil War, through you know the freezes, you know the, of uh, the late 1800s, and into when, you know when the railroads came along, etc. And then the other thing is how he structured the book. I mean, he could have just told a history book. But he stretched it to keep pulling you along. I mean, he's got, it's one of those classic where, I don't know if it was prologue or chapter one, but he starts toward the end. Doesn't let you know the end, but he starts kind of toward the end. 
So now you've got that, and then you jump back about a hundred years or so in that family to his like great grandfather, and and you move along like that. But uh, fabulous book. I mean, it's still uh, just talking about it. You can see how it's. No, I'm glad. No, I'm glad to let everyone out there know about it. It's something that anyone with any interest in Florida or even good writing ought to uh, ought to put on their list. So you left college, you became a journalist, but you always knew you wanted to give that up at some point to write full time. But you were a journalist for about 12 years, covering a very interesting part of Florida history during that period. You were mostly in Tampa, right? If I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was in Tampa, and that was about twelve years. And um, I I worked in some of the bureaus, and then they promoted me up to the Tallahassee bureau. So I covered politics in the late '80s, and so I got to you know, got to see it, got to see sausage being made <laughs> firsthand. Yeah. And I tell you, all the cliches about about politics. You know, like, oh, you're just, you know, you're going too far over the top. It's like, it's seeing it in person is far stranger than anything anybody could write. You know, so, so that, that's, that's a tough. You know, maybe that's why, maybe that's why so many or a number of the finest writers that we do have in Florida started out as journalists covering Florida. I mean, when you talk about your idyllic childhood, and you talk about growing up, you know, riding your banana seated bike, you know, to get to go fishing. It reminds me a lot of uh, of a young Carl Hyacin as well, who I'm sure certainly had quite an influence on you. Oh, well, that was I mean, when I really wanted to dive in, I just tore through his books. And it was almost like I'd read a John D. McDonald, I'd read a Hyacin, I'd read a John D. McDonald, Hyacin, and, and I went through their books like that. I mean, he's, uh, I mean, he was a trailblazer. I mean, I, he was the first one, really. I mean, it was way pre-Florida, man. But he was the first one to say, look, everybody, you got to just tilt your head and look at Florida <laughs> just, a, just a bit differently, and then you'll get it, you know? And uh, anyway, uh, no, no, he, he, he looms large over the Florida genre, you know, market. Florida's the main character in the books. And, and that's where I kind of mapped out, and people – have kind of um, emailed me saying, I, I, I'm on to you. I know what your scheme is. You're trying to sugarcoat history, so we'll, we'll swallow all this Florida history and knowledge so we'll appreciate the state more. And, uh, and I go, you got me. That's what I'm trying to do. And you do it. I mean, I remember when you had, uh, maybe that's your Hunter Thompson thing, but you had that big, was it a Cadillac? You had some big, huge old... Cadillac at the time. I'm still driving the big boats. Yeah, it was a Cadillac. It was a beautiful, big, old car. And when you would pull up, maybe it was the first reading or the third reading or the 10th reading, but you'd pull up and you would, you like do a tour of the state, right? You would tour all the bookstores in the state. You'd stop everywhere. And this is a state that is, that kind of runs through your veins. Yeah, I mean, Floridians are a different creature, and, and frankly, anybody can like become a Floridian. You just have to be able to like, either you're gonna love it or hate it, you know. And and if you come down here and you and you just really, you know, can again again appreciate uh, everything the state has to offer. I mean, I mean, I like visiting other places. I could never live anywhere else. 
Yeah, just how twisted things can be. <laughs> We're able to take just normal everyday things and we twist them into a pretzel that makes it a little bit more interesting and a little stranger as well. Well, the hard, the hard part is, you know, and Carl's mentioned this a lot, just pretty much everywhere he's gone where they say, well, you know, you get the same questions. You're like, well, where do you get all these crazy ideas? And his stock answer, which is true, he goes, I just read the newspaper, you know, and literally... It's true. If, if you live here, you know, things have been so normalized as far as weirdness that you have to remember to notice stuff. I remember I was reading the newspaper and going through, and there's a, the little stories in Florida. And I, there's been, this isn't even an individual story. There have been several like this. But a guy who was down around Miami, I think, uh, greater Miami maybe, was just over in Broward. But it was, uh, he went in to buy beer, and he tried, it was like a Circle K, and he tried to, he had a baby alligator in a cardboard box and he went to trade it for six pack. Right. <laughs> and, the, and, and the guy behind the counter says, we, we just take money, you know? <laughs> but so then, you know, I think, well, the guy probably wasn't hard to find. I think he, he was on foot and he was inebriated and they called the authorities and they turned him over to fish and wildlife. But, uh, and literally I read that story and I'm like, sure, why not? And I, I just turned a couple more pages. And I go, wait. And I went back and I clipped it out oh, with nice. my scissors. But, no, no, yeah. it's really true. We, we're like a Cone Brothers movie, this whole state. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a very odd thing. But that leads me directly to your main character that you choose to see this state through, and that's Serge. So yeah. how did he come about? He came about by accident. He was going to be... Um, he was just going to be a larger than life villain that my protagonist would ultimately have a confrontation with. And as I was going along, I had the list of all the things I wanted to get into the book about Florida because I drew up my plot was, you know, obviously time, you know, a linear time thing, but it was also, I charted on, um, on a map of Florida. I wanted it to be a road trip of a plot, like things would happen and there'd be a chase. And that was just a, a pretext to connect up all the places that I wanted my characters to visit so I could talk about them. And I had different, you know, I had my protagonist, one's in the passenger seat reading a guidebook, you know, as, as they're forced to take this vacation or whatever, and he's spouting history and they're, they're discussing it. And then something else happens when the narrator talks about some stuff. And then I had my main character, I just by accident, it was his turn to talk about Florida, where it was. And since he's nuts, you know, he's, he's crazy, that he went off on this riff. I put it in his voice, and he went off on this riff about Florida history. And I'm like, I didn't expect that, you know. And then next time he went off on a – and by the time I finished the second riff, I go, this is the guy. This is the main character. you got to right. change it. you got to – because he's going to be, you know, the champion of Florida, and he's going to articulate the state and make those – sugar-coated history lessons, you know, a little bit more fun to read. Well, talk about an unreliable narrator, right? I mean, I don't think we've seen a narrator quite like this <laughs> in all of literature. Someone who's, you know, kind of psychopathic, who's schizophrenic, who's got, you know, obsessive compulsive qualities. It sounds like an abnormal psychology class I took when I was a freshman in college. It's like you wrapped it all up into surge. It's pretty amazing. But there's this kind of, but at heart, there's a kind of morality to him, wouldn't you say? 
Well, that's that's one of the aspects of him being crazy, is he he, he has this really solid centered morality, uh, because I mean, as a crazy person, you know, if it's just somebody normal who's sermonizing about, hey, you shouldn't do that, come on, uh, but when it's somebody who's talking nuts, and then suddenly he says something with clarity that you know cuts through all the BS in society. Then, then you know, then it might make a reader stop a little more and say, "Hey, wait a second, that makes sense," you know. But the but the thing is, he's so crazy that he doesn't realize that all of his, all of the bad things he does don't line up with his moral core, you know. Right. So he doesn't see the contradiction, right? Because he's created his own internal morality, so he's doing things based on what he thinks is right to a large extent. Yes, yes. And, oh, and often they are, actually. <laughs> the villains you create are really villainous. And uh, in your own kind of, you know, dark, you know, black humor sort of way. Well, I think the things that he sees that are incorrect about society in Florida, he's right about that. His reaction, a little bit of an overcorrection, a little bit too much. <laughs> I would, other, yeah, well... Yeah, we need that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking today if you didn't if you didn't have that overcorrection. But he but he's tempered a bit by Coleman as well, right? His uh, sidekick, sort of. Yeah, Coleman. Coleman is about the only person. Surge is so intense that Coleman is just about the only. Because Coleman's self-medicated. He's not too bright, and he's and I, I guess Surge needs somebody to listen to him, you know. And so they travel around Florida, doing their own thing. I mean. You know, Coleman has never seen a tiki hut or a rum runner bar that, that he doesn't like, you know, and Serge <laughs> is like a teetotaler because he wants to be able to study the state, you know, and, and they're, they're very opposite. But uh, it, uh, it gives, I guess, Coleman gives him ballast, so to speak. So, so tell us about the new one, Tropic, Tropic of Stupid, which I love Tropic, the name. But Tropic of Stupid. Uh, Tell us about uh, what what Surge up to in this one. Well, it, it actually, uh, and this predates me coming down here, but it, it takes place tremendously in the Keys, and you know the cover's got you know the the spear fisherman, you know the silhouette of the spear fisherman going through the water with bubbles and stuff, and um, it so happened that I I kind of got back into uh, snorkeling, but I mean we're talking about like serious offshore snorkeling, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, down here, certain places, the reef is, uh, you know, about maybe six miles out or so, maybe seven. Right, right. Yeah, so I got back into that quite a bit. And, uh, it, I mean, a lot during one particular year. And usually a book will reflect something that you've been doing a lot or experienced a lot in that year. And so that year it was that, and I got to know, the people at the place, you know, I mean, it's, it's a great place. It's down on Ramrod Key. And after work, the staff goes to the bar and, you know, mm -hmm. for dinner. I mean, and I, and I, and a few days after I asked them, uh, I said, you get off work and you stay at work. You know, <laughs> and they said, yeah, everything's half price for us. You know, so, so anyway, I got to know them and, um, and we, we sat around many afternoons, them telling me stories and everything. And so then, uh, basically, uh, I, while, you know, I was out taking the, the boat rides out, cause it's about 45 minutes or longer to get out to the reef, you know, from land, you know, it's that, you know, and, um, 
I just started thinking about it and a plot just came to mind because I said, I got to showcase this area. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of the keys where you get through Key Largo and Island Rod and Marathon, but then you get to the lower keys and it's not very populated and everybody just wants to get to Key West by then. They just want to fly through. So it's kind of, let's say, unmolested by all the other rampant, you know, development and everything. But Serge, Serge decides he's going to learn about, <laughs> well, Serge decides he wants to teach Coleman offshore snorkeling. And <laughs> I'm sorry, if you know the characters, you, you know, Serge is going to be fine, but him having to take care of Coleman out in the ocean, <laughs> it's, it doesn't go so well. No. So what do they, do they, what do you, um, how do you get them six miles offshore? Do they, well, do they get their own boat or are they with guides? How, how does that work? They, they go down with the guides that I would take out. And I, and I actually give a shout out. Uh, it's the Lou Key Reef Resort. And it's this old motel from the 50s where some people had a brainstorm. Hey, we got a canal going out to one of the greatest reefs. And so, you know, since then it's been this dive motel. Uh-huh. Not a dive, but pretty much where it's located, everybody that stays there is like a snorkeler or a scuba diver. And, and it's like an end destination. You go there to do that. And, uh, and then, but in the meantime, where he gets down there from is he, um, he volunteers at the state park. Uh, and so, so that's, that's his last stop before he goes down there and he meets a character that has a life transition and has a lot of money and decides to just heck with it. I'm just going to go off in solitude, you know, like Thoreau, you know, and he, and he becomes a park ranger. And then Serge meets up with the guy, and so they develop a relationship, and then the plot sweeps down, you know, toward the keys from there. So I got, I got two kind of segments of what I love about Florida: the state park system, and then you know, the uh, the diving. Now that we have Twitter and all these memes, and and Craig, Craig Pittman has done a very wonderful job of bringing up the whole idea of the Florida man, not just Craig, but I mean everybody has. What is the Florida man? First, it was like, if you remember um, the Time Magazine issue, you know, Paradise Lost. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, but it was Miami Paradise Lost at that point. Right, Right. and it was all about, so every, and then Miami Vice came along, the TV show, and and so everybody had the idea that, you know, you know, Florida's, you know, dysfunctional and dangerous and all this stuff. And Miami Vice made it chic, kind of a Casablanca. Yeah, it's dangerous, but romantic, but, you know, you know, exotic. Uh, but then only, you know, Florida just kept getting weirder and weirder. There is no, there's, there's no limit. It's just going to keep going. And, um, but there was this an amorphous sense that there's all these strange people doing all this strange stuff in Florida. And, you know, it was just, uh, you know, part of the reputation but it hadn't really been given a name. And so, you know, basically, eventually it was gonna happen. So eventually it got a name. And, you know, Florida man got a, you know, I guess he got a Twitter account, whoever yeah. put that up. And Whenever so, anything strange happens, it's it's a Florida man doing it. Yes, yes, the, the, the world's most inept superhero. Uh, but- uh, Well, think about, I mean, really interestingly enough, I mean, it happened with this whole situation that just happened in Washington, right? It was a Florida man who stole, um, podium. yeah, who stole the podium, right? <laughs> Go figure. 
I know. It was crazy. That's typical. I mean, he his wife's a doctor. He lived in a suburb in the middle of the state. The typical kind of craziness that comes with this, you know, with, with who we are. Well, I I got to read more about this, but today, uh, maybe a couple hours ago, uh, they said man arrested, and they showed the pic. They showed the picture of the Coast Guard. You know, Florida man. I don't even think it's Florida man because it was Keys News, so it was local. It was a local man, you know, arrested for stealing Tiki Hut, and and, it, <laughs> and he said they said he, they believe he was intoxicated, but he somehow got it out into the water and was floating it away <laughs> from the shore. And the Coast Guard had to come get him. He's in he's in the Tiki Hut. I don't know if he was rowing or what, but but. He got the tiki hut out on the water. <laughs> and anyway, yeah. Oh man. So so who are you reading these days? Who I mean, the the whole Florida scene has kind of exploded and people who started, you know, people like you, I get I feel so good about your success. And then you look at people, you know, who've all been writing for so many years, Jim Grappando and others who've used Florida as a as a basis for what they do. Do you guys hang out? Do you see each other? Do you speak to one another? Any of it's, that sort of stuff? It, it, uh, James, is, we're, we're great friends. It's, we would see each other. And matter of fact, uh, pretty much, uh, uh, we would always get matched up on panels. So, you know, at least, you know, once a year at the fair, which the fair yeah. tends to be, I like to just drop anchor and cause you get to, you know, keep your acquaintances going. It's not, it's not like you're, you're renewing acquaintance because you, you know it's every year if you really you know you know, you know right. come by uh but it was yeah and <laughs> you know and then you get to meet up with those that band of reprobates the rock bottom you know from yes, exactly no um, we have a great community of writers in florida we it's really kind of amazing that that it's developed this way it's the one thing that it's just so satisfying to see young careers blossom into really successful careers and the rest of the country and the world you know discover writers that were homegrown so i thank you for it tim you've done you've done a remarkable job but you know when i read when i think of your work and i look at the titles things like florida roadkill i can just pick them out i won't read them all but atomic lobster nuclear jellyfish gator a go-go hammerhead ranch motel coconut cowboy no sunscreen for the dead. And the one before this one, Naked Came, the Florida Man. You know, I, I think basically that if someone wants to get a good sense of history and wants to figure out how to work a tour once we can travel again of what Florida is all about, just pick up a terrific um, a book by Tim Dorsey and just head out for wherever Tim is heading in his books. It, it You cannot go wrong. And I'm wondering if... If you would, if you'd be so kind as to read a little something uh, from from the new one for us, this is from the prologue. People will know whether they want to go get this book or run away from it. On this, <laughs> the rain had just stopped when the convenience store clerk asked the customer not to heat up his urine in the microwave. The customer explained that the urine he was heating wasn't his, which meant it was Florida. At the other end of the store stood two Abbott and Costello-shaped customers. Serge, what are you looking for? asked the plump one. Coleman, I told you at the last store, said the thin one. Baseball cards and kites. 
Coleman looked toward the front of the store. What are those two guys arguing about up there? Urine heating, said Sturge. <laughs> Sunshine State tip number 327. Never use convenience store microwaves because there's now an epidemic of addicts borrowing someone else's pee-pee for drug tests. But many were getting caught since the samples were too cold. So the drug culture had some kind of meeting to resolve it, and now I can't melt the cheese on my Cuban sandwiches. <laughs> Tim Dorsey, you never disappoint. Thank you so much for being on The Literary Life, and I look forward to seeing you in the virtual, in the real world sometime really soon. And I, I, I will say this, though, as far as, you know, uh, Florida and, and stuff, uh, I said this from the beginning, I said to the end, um, was I told you that I said, uh, when I got the books and books, I said, I've made it, I'm playing Carnegie. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> I do remember that. And take, thanks. So I, I mean it to the state. Thanks for all your support all, all these years. Thanks, Tim. Thanks.